Well, it's good to be here this morning. So uh, thank you, Adam. I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be here today and just to be able to worship the Lord together with you folks today. A prominent pastor of many battle-worn years was once asked this question. The question was what he saw was the most needed quality among church leaders today. Without a moment's hesitation, he emphatically replied, faithfulness. Above all other essential qualities such as love and humility and gentleness and sacrifice and integrity and, and all of those, those elements that build what makes a pastor a pastor. Above all of those things, none can overshadow the desperate call to faithfulness. Faithfulness, and I'm sure you would agree, is at the heart of ministry. And this is what God requires from a pastor. And so today, uh, we have the privilege of, of celebrating the faithfulness of a dear brother uh, and, and a fellow pastor, Adam Tyson. I've known Adam for about five years. Uh, I actually knew him from 2003. We came in 2003, uh, not 2004. But we had the privilege of seeing, uh, as a family, Adam's faithfulness to us and uh, also to his word. And I've watched Adam grow over the past 15 years as he's faithfully ministered in different capacities. He's been used of the Lord to preach even in Kiwiland, in New Zealand. And uh, God has used him to great effect in my home country. And I, I just, I, I love seeing this man minister. And that's one of the reasons that we've invited him to come. And I believe he's spoken at about three different conferences that we have had. And the men's conference recently up there in, in Hickman, uh, California, Northern California. And it's just a blessing to, to see how God has shaped and molded uh, his life. And I know that you as a church are truly enriched and blessed by his presence and his family's presence amongst you. You know, Adam has a true shepherd's heart. He cares for the welfare of others. And even though he's busy, the husband of and father of an energetic family, which he's got no one to blame but himself for that, I know that, I know that uh, this five-year celebration is only possible, not because of his energy, but because of the one who put that energy in there. And maybe he's just a naturally energetic guy, but when you place that energy and you infuse the, the, the Spirit of God into a human being who has that energy, amazing things begin to happen. And so this morning, uh, I know that this, uh, this celebration is only possible because of the superabounding grace of God, uh, a grace that we've talked about conforms a self-centered, proud, rebellious-hearted man into a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the King of Kings, uh, the one who's the best of masters to serve. And Adam, it's it's an honor today to be here, brother. It's an honor honor to to share uh, the Word of God with you and with your flock. And it's an honor because there's uh, essentially here, there's a testimony of the glory and the grace of God as His work through you to others. Let us never forget that with God, uh, that without God we are nothing, and that with God nothing is impossible. So because of God's unfailing grace and because of His uh, faithfulness to us, uh, he expects his under-shepherds, he expects the elders and the pastors of his flock to be found faithful. And so for our time of celebration, I want us to consider the, 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 the characteristics of a faithful minister. 
And my purpose this morning is, one, to refresh and refocus all who are called to minister and pastor in the flock of God, and two, to provide for you, the flock, a basis on which you can be confident in your leadership. I've been around churches for, for all my life. I, I was saved at the age of 18, and uh, so for 30 seven years I've been involved in some level of ministry in some churches, and I, I know that sometimes it's hard for a church to really have a confidence in their leadership, because we're mere men. That's what we are, mere men. We're frail creatures of the dust. But we must remember that God has raised up men and given men to the church, and we need to support them and encourage them and, and come under them. And so part of my message this morning is really a call to you as a, as a congregation here at Placerita Bible Church to gather around your elders, to come in prayer and support and encouragement and recognize that they need support just as much as you do. And they pour their life out to many, and you, the many, can pour your life into the few. And so may God bless you and bless this message to that end. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 24 through 29, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. I'm reading from the NASB, so if you've got an ESV, just follow along as well. But this faithful minister, the Apostle Paul, one of the, the greatest in, in the New Testament in terms of his faithfulness, writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. Verse 24, Colossians chapter 1. Read along with me. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. And we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also, also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Father, I pray this morning that as we take this text and as we seek to understand the truth that's contained in this text, that, Lord, you would minister to us. We are a needy people. Father, we need you to speak to our lives, to our hearts, to our, our very inner being, that, Father, we might be those people who are complete in Christ, that we might see Jesus for all that he is. And, Father, we might understand the blessing that he so desires to pour out upon us and the glory that he so desires to envelop us with. So God, this morning, would you minister to our hearts? Would you save souls? Would you encourage uh, those that are maybe downtrodden this morning? Would you lift us up? And would you set our eyes firmly upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith? We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this passage reveals, does it not, the heart of the Apostle Paul. And because of that, it's an incredibly insightful passage. 
it ministers to me, and it speaks, as I look at this passage, it speaks to what the life of a faithful minister is all about. And I want to look this morning, I want to break this passage down simply into three non-negotiable characteristics of a faithful minister. And the reason I want to do that is so that you can rightly be thankful to God for those that He gives you as the ministers and the leaders, the elders, the pastors of this church, and especially of Adam this morning. Well, the first characteristic of a faithful minister is simply this. He suffers with a sense of joy. Look at it there in verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Ministry, beloved, ministry is hard work. There are times of challenges. There are, there are times of trials. There are times of difficulty. There are times of suffering. And a faithful minister embraces these challenges with a true sense of joy. It sounds so wrong, doesn't it? Joy and suffering? Most of us grumble in suffering, but there's a call in a minister's life to suffer with the sense of joy. And Paul sets the example. He gives us two reasons here in this text why we can rejoice in sufferings. Firstly, he finds joy in the good of others. He finds joy in the good of others. He says, he says now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's writing to the church of Colossae and he's saying, I rejoice in, in my sufferings for your sake. Paul could suffer with joy because he, he was others-focused. He wasn't self-focused. He saw the good that his suffering was producing in the lives of other believers in other towns in which he ministered. And while Paul was sometimes discouraged, he never lost his joy in the Lord. In fact, he even commands us, doesn't he? Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. This isn't just being happy. This isn't just having fun. This is a deep-seated joy that comes from knowing that your life counts for a purpose that's greater than, than humankind, that's greater than what's in the physical realm. It's a joy knowing that your life counts for someone that's greater than the eye can see and the ear can hear. That your life counts for the glory of God. This is the joy that Paul experienced. And Paul confirms this joy and he confirms this call here. Even in his life, he says in 2 Corinthians 4.8, he says, We are perplexed but not despairing. We're persecuted but we're not forsaken. We're struck down but we're not destroyed. Why? Because Paul saw the surpassing greatness of God that became his through the blood and the work of Christ on the cross, that the Spirit of God was now living and working through him, and that glory was now impacting the lives of other people all around the town and the towns and the cities in Asia Minor, and all of the places that this man found God taking him. He witnessed the spiritually dead coming to life. He wished, witnessed the spiritually blind seeing. Uh, he saw division being replaced with unity. He watched, he watched cultures that were at war with one another, that were enemies of one another, come together in Christ and worship side by side, loving one another. 
And the church was being built one soul at a time. And Paul confirms this. He says in this very next statement in our verse, he says, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Paul served Christ. Listen to this carefully. He served Christ by serving the church. That's not some ecclesiastical body. That's not some structure that men have created. This is you and me, the church, the living temple of God, the, the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells in, the, the, the people that God has chosen and called and elected from before time began. And Paul served the church. And a faithful minister finds joy and suffering because he sees the church being built and strengthened and encouraged through his suffering. But there's a second reason he gives in this verse why he had this ability to suffer with a sense of joy. He finds joy in identifying with Christ. He says he sees himself as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, what does that mean? Well, please understand what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Paul is saying Christ's death was insufficient and, and it wasn't enough to save us and secure us for all eternity. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he's not saying that, that Christ needed some help in order to, to secure souls for the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. He just made it clear back in verses 19 through 23 that Jesus Christ alone is sufficient to reconcile us to God and to establish peace through his shed blood. Paul is, Paul is not talking about the atoning work of Christ on the cross, but rather he's referring here to the trials and the afflictions of being a human being who lives his life for Jesus Christ. You will suffer loss. If you're true to Christ, you will suffer. Jesus understood that, didn't he? In the very call to become a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you are. Take up a cross. Take up the symbol and the mark of a willingness to die for me. Because no one else is worthy. You see, we need to be worthy followers of Jesus Christ the one who gave his life for us, the one who left the glory of heaven, the splendor of heaven, and took on humankind and came and walked amongst us, and, and that one who gave his life to save us. How can we, his followers, not in response, willingly and joyously embrace the afflictions and the sufferings of Christ in our service of him? We, like all believers who have gone before us, are persecuted for upholding the truth of the gospel. And Paul here is saying, like Christ, I also experience the suffering of a fallen and a broken world. There's an interesting text that kind of helps clarify this idea of filling up the sufferings of Christ. And it's where Paul writes back in Philippians chapter 2. And he writes concerning a young man named Epaphroditus. And he says this, he says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because they came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his own life to complete what was deficient in your service of me. Paul's writing a letter to the Philippian church. And here's this young man, Epaphroditus, and he was serving Paul uh, in a way that the Philippian church couldn't serve him, even to the point of near death. 
And he was filling up the deficiency of their service. And, and this is what Paul's meaning here when he says that he's, in, in his suffering, he is filling up these, the, the afflictions of Christ. He is, he is bringing this reality, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He's bringing Christ to the people, and he's experiencing the ongoing suffering as a result of that. And he finds joy in that identity. For Paul to live is Christ, to die is gain. We shouldn't be surprised that the sufferings that come upon us, Jesus said they would come. The Apostle Peter says they would come. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Is that your mindset? It was Paul's mindset. It's the mindset of anyone who's a faithful minister of God. This is incredible. Why should the Christian keep on rejoicing according to 1 Peter? Because of the knowledge they are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. They are making known the grace of God through their sufferings. And that grace of God is that which has the effectual power and glory to bring about a transformation of an individual's life. And so we find great joy then in being identified in this way with our Lord and Savior. We see this in the early church as the apostles are flogged, and yet it says they went in Acts chapter 5, they, they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. In other words, their sufferings showed that they were identified with belonging to Jesus Christ. And they were doing and sharing and being a reflection of Him to the, to the world around them, to the, needies, to the needy world around them. And so the faithful minister, he sees that it's his privilege to suffer for the Lord, and he finds a sense of joy in this. In contrast, the unfaithful minister, also known as the hireling in the Gospels, he won't care for the sheep. When things get tough, what will he do? Well, he'll just run away. He'll go looking out for another opportunity, another provision, because this is too hard. Listen, you don't get faithful ministry without a mindset that says, I will take it, I will embrace it, I will endure the sufferings that come when it, when it comes to serving other people. And quite honestly, we don't suffer very much here in the, sta in the States, do we? Even as ministers, we don't suffer much. But I have friends who have died in the, in the course of being faithful ministers to God in the mission field. In fact, when I was about 13 years old, I had a, a, a Sunday school teacher, actually, when I was 10 years old, but by the time I was 13, her husband died. He was a, a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and that man put his life on the line daily, daily. And I, I remember him telling the story one day of standing between two warring tribes of two valleys up there in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And these are people, that they were tribal and they were warriors and someone stole a pig from the other tribe and, and, and so they came and they said, we're going to kill them. And he, and he went out and they came together on, a, on an airfield that um, MEF had built and, and he, he stood in the middle of the airfield with a warring tribe coming this way and a warring tribe coming this way. And he begged to God that God would stop them. And that man put his life on the line. Do you put your life on the line for Christ? Would you put your life on the line for Christ? You see, a faithful minister, he does. And he finds a sense of joy and suffering because he knows 
that the church is being built up and he knows that that's the very mark of Christ in his life. Well, the second thing that we learn from this text, the second characteristic of a faithful minister is that he serves with a sense of duty. Look at verses 25 through 27. And here Paul gives us two reasons for having this sense of duty. Firstly, he sees himself as one appointed by God. He says, of this church, I was made a minister. Paul was an apostle by the will of God, not by the will of men. And every faithful minister knows that the role he's given by men is ultimately an appointment from God. I graduated from the master's seminary and I prayed to God that he would lead me to the church he wanted me to go to. There were plenty of places I could have gone. I had no idea I was going to stay in, in California. New Zealand's a beautiful country and it's no loss to go back to New Zealand. But in God's providence and the way that God led us, he took us to a little church in central California, Hickman Community Church, a church that had been ravaged by an unfaithful minister. And I went there just to fill in to preach for one of my, my fellow seminarians. And, and uh, as, I, as I left, they said, would you be prepared to come and, and, and candidate for, for a pastor? We, we've been looking for a pastor. Well, long story short, I went there. There were 30 people. These 30 people in this little community were afraid. Maybe there were 50 on a Sunday would turn up. But they were afraid and fearful. They had been, uh, their previous pastor was now in, in prison for life without parole. They had the media, news media, they had helicopters flying over, they had the communities spitting tacks at them, the fiery darts of the evil one were coming at them every single day they, they lived in that community. And I remember going to this church and I was just overwhelmed with what I saw. God's people, God's people who were exposed and, and, and they were just being attacked and they didn't even know who to trust, they didn't even trust one another. And I would preach like this, and at the end of my preaching, I would pray a benediction, a prayer of benediction, and, and dismiss them, and within five minutes, the parking lot was empty. I remember standing one Sunday on the steps of the church out the front, this little old church building, chapel kind of building, and, and I remember saying to my wife, these people are in desperate, desperate need. And I sensed that even in the call. And I remember people coming to me as I left, uh, as I graduated from, from seminary, and people came to me and said, well, what, what are you doing going to Hickman? Where's Hickman? Why are you going to a little church in, up there in, in, in Central California, in the armpit of California? It stinks up there. And I'm like, well, thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> and I hated cows. I, go, I just want you to know that. I'm a sheep man, not a cow man. I hate cows. And... But I, I, I had a sense of duty. And people said, what on earth led you from the beautiful country of New Zealand to come to California and then go up there to that place? And, and really what they were saying, that despised place, that Nazareth of the 21st century. And I said, well, I, all I can tell you is God's directed me there. I feel a sense of responsibility and duty to help these people. You say, did the need lead me? Maybe, to some degree. But ultimately, it was the Lord, and the Lord confirmed it. 
he confirmed it one night as we sat together and as, as an elder board and I was concerned that they were just saying yes to everything that I said and they were agreeing with everything that I said and I wrote at the top of my piece of paper on the fourth visit we had three we had two meetings every time with the elders that we were there in those visits and the fourth visit I sat down and I said before we start tonight I, I just need to make sure that I've put on the table what's on my heart I said I, I have a real concern I said, I've walked with you. I've walked through Shepherd's Conference with them. I, I'd spent all these hours with them over meals and talking ministry and asking questions and, and all kinds of stuff. And I said, I have one concern. I said, we've not disagreed on anything. And I said, and that concerns me because we're all human here. There should be some level of disagreement. And they started laughing. And I said, what, what's so funny about that? And they had a pad, on the p pad of paper on the table in front and they pushed it across and they turned it around and they said, that's our first concern tonight as well. You've agreed with everything that we've said. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's all a matter of perspective, right? And then there was just this, this dead silence as we sat there and we experienced the glory of God in that moment. That God in His grace had answered my prayers. And God in His grace had answered their prayers. And I couldn't go anywhere else. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I was committed to this church. I remember one guy in the, in the, in the church service we had, he puts his hand up a question answer time. He wanted to get to know, you know, was I really there to be a faithful minister? Faithfulness is important, right? When you've been through what this guy, this church had been through, you know faithfulness is important. He says, well, how long are you going to stay here? Is he just going to use this church as kind of a stepping stone to a bigger church? How shameful is that? Even th that I would think like that as a, uh, as a faithful minister, as a servant of Christ. I go where Christ takes me. And, and I looked at this guy and I went, brother, and I knew he was a bit of a jokester. I said, I'm going to be here long enough to bury you. <laughs> 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 That's exactly what happened. They all laughed. And then I said, Lord willing, you know, because I don't know, maybe God will move me on. I don't know. All I know is that I'm here and I'm there and I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing because I'm serving the Lord. It's so freeing. And a faithful man, a faithful minister, he has that sense of duty because he's appointed by God. And it really doesn't man matter what men say. It matters what God says. And that's why the faithful minister doesn't just serve in the church because he needs a job. He's not there just to, to put in his hours and pick up a paycheck at the end of the week. There's, there's a divine work, a divine element of the work that he finds himself doing. And, and there's a calling on his life and in and, and, and this ministry of shepherding the flock of God. And he knows that he's ultimately accountable not to men, but to God. Paul put it this way. He said that his ministry was according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Imagine that. Paul saw his work as a divine appointment, and therefore he knew he was accountable to God rather than men. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. It's a sacred trust, friends. Adam holds a sacred trust. The elders of this church hold a sacred trust. It's been handed to them. Yes, you are here. Yes, but understand there's a divine element that you need to see and you need to support and encourage. There are men in our generation who are falling like flies 
because of they are unfaithful, because they let the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life and the boasting of what they have and do consume them rather than giving glory to Christ and Christ alone. Not only does he see himself as a, a man appointed by God, but look, look, look at that verse, verse 25. He sees himself as bearing a message from God. Uh, ministers have a special message. Verse 25, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. There's really nothing clever about this. There's nothing coy about this. There's, there's nothing fancy about this. It's just taking God's Word and communicating that Word in such a way that it's effective to build up the body of Christ, to help people live to the glory of Jesus Christ. This was Paul's job. He had a message given to him it wasn't his own message, it was the king's message, and so Paul would stand strong and he would herald that message wherever he went, in the synagogues from town to town, and down by the river and in the streets, he would herald this message, he would walk into Athens, and there he would stand in the Areopagus and he would say, oh, I see that you are a people, you're a religious people, you have gods for everything, and just in case you miss one, there's a God called the unknown God, let me tell you who he is. And he would herald that message. See, our message is Christ. We preach who? Christ. We preach Christ. We don't make up our own message. I, mean, I, I don't know how guys do it. I mean, they've got to be super brilliant to come up with something, some fancy story, a message new every Sunday. All I do is open the Bible. God speaks to me. I let it dwell in me and enrich me. And then I bring it and share what I've learned from it. It's not that hard. I don't have to be clever. I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd boy from New Zealand. I'm pretty average. But this isn't average. I don't have any authority, but this has all authority. I'm not inspired, <laughs> but this sure is inspired. And so I'm a servant of God, but I serve God by proclaiming an inspired infallible, authoritative message from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and, and there's great joy in this. There's great blessing in this. In fact, Paul says that he didn't make up his message. He says, we preach the mystery. Anyone like a good mystery novel? Well, Paul talks about here about this mystery, he says, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. This mystery is simply, and he explains it here in the text, you don't have to go looking for it, it's right here. This mystery is Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in particular, it's the good news and the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations. The Old Testament prophets saw this good news at a distance, but they didn't fully realize and understand all that it meant, all the implications of it. Jesus Christ came and he revealed the fullness of God's redemptive plan from ages past to ages eternity and to eternity. Paul even said emphatically in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, it's, it's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. And even in our text, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. 
And it's the faithful minister's job to make known what are the riches of that glory, the glory of that mystery among the Gentiles. That was Paul's calling. That was how he was set apart. Remember on the road to Damascus, and he, and he sees a bright light, falls off the horse that he's on, or donkey, and his eyes are blinded, and he has a conversation. And he knows he's speaking to God. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the word came back, and I am Jesus Christ, whom you're persecuting. And then he makes his way to Damascus, when he stays in this place blinded, and then God gets another guy, and he says, you need to go over and tell Paul what his mission is. And he says, who? Well, back then it was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. That guy? Yeah, that guy. But he kills Christians. I mean, he's putting them in prison. He's, 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 he's making Christians' lives a mystery. Go and, see, go and speak to him, because I'm, I'm telling you, I have, I have a job for this man. He's going to take the gospel of the Gentiles, and he's going to suffer much for me. Huh. Beloved, that's our message. Our message, the church's message in the 21st century is Christ and Christ alone because Christ addresses every human need. If you're lonely, the gospel addresses loneliness. If you're fearful, the gospel addresses fearfulness. If you are, if you are uh, self-conscious and, and, and uh, looking for um, answers within yourself, the gospel addresses that by saying there's no good thing in you. So stop looking because that's the problem. You're looking at nothing good. Look to Jesus. If you're looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose and reason and rhyme for living, it's found in Christ. The faithful minister must be Christ-centered in his leadership. He will call the saints to Christ as Paul did. Colossians 3, come over Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. This is Paul calling the church. Put your minds on Christ. Set your minds on Christ. Second verse, set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When, God, when Christ, who is, is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The faithful minister's message to his congregation is, listen, seek Christ. Set your mind on Christ. Love Christ. Obey Christ. He calls you week after week to do these things. This is what Adam's job is. He's here to call you to walk with your eyes and your mind set on Christ. Because when you set your mind and your eyes on Christ, your life, your body follows. And you become a vessel that's pleasing to God. You become useful. This mindset does not focus on the things of the earth. And I know, I, I, I drive from central California to here, and this, this valley, it's affluent. There's a lot of money in this valley. I pull up in the parking lot. I just look around. Oh, there's a $90,000 car. Oh, there's a, there's a $70,000 car. Oh, there's a, in Hickman, there's a $1,500 car. Oh, there's a bike with, what's that contraption put inside it? Oh, there's a little lawnmower motor in there. That's what they get around on in Hickman. Bikes with lawnmower motors. It's 
not really that bad, but there's a lot of wealth here. I'm not asking for a handout, okay? Please. But a faithful minister, he calls you to be separate from the world and from worldliness. He wants you to, be, to, to pursue godliness. And all the stuff that you see in this valley, it's all going to burn. I mean, last time I was here, there was a fire right at the other end of the valley here. And, and some fireman in here said, we've got to shut the church down tonight. Get out of here just in case it gets in the valley. Well, I, I understand that. I get that. But you know what? That fire's coming anyway. It's coming. Where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where's your mindset? What are you looking to? What are you trusting in? The faithful minister calls you to Christ as your means, as your source, as your authority, and the joy of your life. He calls you to see Christ alone is your life is your strength, is your power to resist the pull of the world, flesh, and the devil. That's what the faithful minister does. The faithful minister understands that the greatest motivation for godliness is that which Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Listen, every true believer has died and their life is hidden with Christ in God. Every faithful minister knows that there is a magnificent glory awaiting for every true believer in his flock when Christ is revealed. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, Colossians 3, 4 says, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I can't help but ask at this point, is Christ your greatest treasure? Can you say that you have counted all things Loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's never forget who He is. He's the eternal spotless one. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lord of glory. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. He's the teacher, the vine, the way, the truth, the life, the door, the good shepherd, the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the preeminent one, the precious cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the bridegroom, the husband, the head of the church. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our advocate. He's our mediator between God and man. And all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. In the full, he's the fullness of the deity. He's the heir of all things. He created all things and all things were made by him, through him and for him. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the exact representation of God. And I know I've repeated that, but I want you to get it. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the prophets. He's greater than Satan, and he's stronger than death. So pure is the Lord Jesus Christ that he is, his, he is called the bright and morning star. He's the light of the world. He's exalted above the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. He's our righteousness. He's our wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's our Lord. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the nations. He's the lion of Judah, the living word, the rock of, of salvation, the eternal spirit. He's the ancient of days. He's the creator, the comforter, the Messiah, and he's the great I am. The point is that when a person embraces this one, this Christ, this Savior, 
there's a new life they receive. There's a new motivation, a new direction, a confidence to live, a certainty of hope is established before them. And they live their temporal day-to-day existence knowing that should they die today, they would be in the presence of this all-glorious Savior. And the faithful minister, he knows that. And he knows he's appointed and he's commissioned to preach Christ. Well, finally and briefly, this brings me to the third characteristic of a faithful minister. And that's in verses 28 through 29. He shepherds with a sense of purpose. And these verses are are so full and so rich. But let me just give you the skeleton of them. Uh, He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. You know, the faithful minister, he, he senses a responsibility here. We could say that the first characteristic that we looked at has to do with a focus, uh, focus in ministry on the minister's own life and his own relationship with God. We could say that the second characteristic that we've looked at this morning has its focus uh, on God, to whom he's accountable to. But now this third characteristic, it puts the focus on you, the congregation, God's chosen people. Another way of saying this is the faithful minister has a people focus, an others focus. He's a people person. He's a shepherd of souls, a discerner of hearts. He's a shaper and influencer of lives. You can't claim to be a good pastor if you don't shepherd people, if you don't get out of the pulpit and walk with them in the trenches of life. People need shepherding just like sheep need shepherding. And Paul uses three ingredients to help him to fulfill this ministry to other people. Firstly, look at there, we proclaim him. Again, it's a Christ-centered message. But how does he do it? How does he proclaim this Christ-centered message? With admonition, the faithful minister is continually admonishing the people through proclamation. He's putting the word of God into the mind of the people. That's what this word means. He's warning them. He's admonishing them. He's calling them to change the path on which they're walking. He's he's recalibrating their thinking week after week after week after week. And so admonishing then has to do with correcting wrong thinking. It's, It's a process of reorientation, if you like. Every week you gather as a church. It's one of the greatest blessings of coming to church, of sitting under a faithful minister's proclamation. But the second is he uses teaching. There's, there's a positive side of proclamation here. Warning is that you could say is negative. Teaching is kind of the positive side. Becoming a Christian is the first step of faith followed by baptism, then a life of learning and growing in the knowledge and the appropriation of Christ. In order to get there, you have to be taught. You don't grow in Christ by osmosis. Any more than if you go down to In-N-Out Burger, you don't go in there and come out as a burger. Although some of you eat a lot of burgers and maybe look a little like a burger because of it. But anyway, <laughs> I'm not looking at anyone, right? I'm just saying here. But, but, but the faithful minister, he knows he needs to warn, but he also knows he needs to instruct. He needs to teach, and he teaches the Word of God. And, and what he's doing is he's teaching you how to clothe yourself in Christ in every situation you find yourself in life. How do you put on Christ here? You've got a son who's, who's saying he's suicidal. How do you put on Christ here? How do you help him put on Christ? You've got a, a daughter who's gone wayward, and she's followed the pathway of the lust of her flesh, and and how do you put on Christ in that? 
you've got a business that's failing and, and it seems like everything in your world's crashing down. How do you put on Christ? That's what a faithful minister is there to do. He's to help you with that. And he does it in a manner, uh, it says here, of proclaiming these things with all wisdom. And that speaks to a sensitivity to where people are and a call to appropriate apply the Word of God to that situation of life. And so this faithful minister, he's a Christ, has a Christ-centered ministry, but he also has a Christ-centered pursuit. Look at the second part of verse 28, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is his goal. His goal is to pre- present people complete, which means to present them mature in Christ. This is speaking of spiritual maturity. And then thirdly, for sake of time, he's Christ has a Christ-centered resolve. Look at verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving, literally laboring and toiling to the point of exhaustion. We get our word agonize from, from the Greek word behind this English translation. It comes from the athletic world as a competitor strives to excel and break the current record or to win the race. He pushes his body past the point of pain to the point of agony and even collapse. This is what the calling of a faithful minister is. And I'm reminded when I think of this, of the labor that's involved in farming. It's not easy. It's hard. And, and it's equivalent in, in this kind of setting as well. Faithful minister toils long and hard in the word to feed his flock. He wants them to have the food that they need, not always what they want to hear. He doesn't come to tickle your ears. I haven't come this morning to tickle your ears. I've come to instruct and to teach. And not everything I say is, is, is going to be heard and, and received with pleasantness in your heart because maybe it's convicting you. Maybe it's challenging you. Maybe, maybe you're having to think through, oh, he's, he wants me to give something up. I don't want you to give anything up. I want you to gain something. I want you to know Christ. I want you to, I want you to let go of what you think you have, which you don't have, and lay hold of that for which you've been laid hold of. You say, where does this faithful minister get his energy to carry on even in the midst of discouragements and difficulties? Look, he says here, laboring and striving according to the power which mightily works within me. So both the enablement of God's power in us and the call are in the present tense here. Therefore, a faithful minister presses on to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Adam, I pray that God will give you many, many years to come. In the same way, you have been a faithful minister. I love this passage. As a pastor, it's both sobering, it's challenging, encouraging to me. And and you know, the, the thing is that this passage is really the faithful minister's job description. And it hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. And I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that I don't have to reinvent myself every Sunday. I, I just take the job description. So we've got to write a job description for you. I already have a job description. And if I understand my job description, that incorporates every element, overseeing every element of the life of a, lo- a local congregation so that that congregation will grow in love and in unity and know the peace of God that passes understanding, that there will be a, a true sense of others, otherness and serving one another in this context of the local church. And what for? What's the purpose in that? So that when the world looks in, they'll go, oh, you, you, you're Christian. <laughs> you follow Christ. 
you do things that don't happen out there in the world. I mean, we live in a generation that's so dark morally, that's so full of fear. I mean, the church should shine. When people come into our lives and we open up our homes and we show hospitality and we introduce them to people that we love and serve and, 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 and run with, as it were, in life, that these people should look at us and go, I've never seen this before. And the light of the glory of God then shines through us into their lives. And they say, I want what you've got. How can I have it? And we should have people flocking into our churches because there's such a need in our generation to have something that's of substance and it's real and that's relational. You know, this Facebook stuff is just nonsense. Oh, I got a thousand friends. (laughs) Well, why, why am I visiting you in hospital? I'm not even a friend on Facebook. I don't see anyone else visiting you. Oh, yeah. Maybe they're not your friend. Mark Zuckerberg, there you go. He's got some things to answer for, hasn't he? Well, I love this passage, as I said, because as I look at this passage, all I have to do as a minister is embrace the sense of duty, the sense of joy, sorry, the sense of duty and the purpose that belongs to being a faithful minister of Christ. And I just do it, and I just keep doing it, and I do it till the day God takes me home. But I also love this passage because I know it's a great encouragement to you as a congregation. It describes the kind of leader you want and you need. And it enables you to be confident in the direction that the church is going when the man described in this text is the same man you see in the pulpit. And I heard that today. Have a confidence in him. I'm not saying put him above Christ. I'm not saying that. But follow him as he follows Christ. Support your elders and your leaders. And what you have in Adam Tyson is a man who's been faithful as one called of God to be your shepherd. Faithful to the truth. Faithful to love. Faithful to serve. He has admonished you and he's taught you with all long suffering and tears. And I know from conversations that we have had over the years that he loves you. And he wants the best for you as a church. And I know from meeting many of you in the times that have been amongst you in the past that you are equally grateful for the provision of Adam and, of course, his family, Lisa, and their children. But there are two responsibilities I want to leave you with. You've heard the word, but I want to speak to you as a congregation. Two things you can do that will show your support and we'll finish here. One You have a responsibility to pray for your leaders. Put them at the top of your prayer list. Pray for them every day. We need your prayers. There's so many pressures today. The culture we live in places certain pressures on a pastor. The legal ramifications of what he does. I mean, I have no no shame if the Word of God says that homosexuality is a sin and that Christ died for that sin out of a love for that homosexual, that's what I'm going to preach. You've got to be bold. And if that means that I spend time in jail, that's okay. Paul was in jail when he wrote this. 
So one thing you can do is pray for your leaders. Pray for their purity. Pray for their encouragement. Pray for their endurance. Pray for their empowerment. Pray for their faithfulness in all of the duties that God has placed on their shoulders. There are many times where I'm tempted to get up from the seat and go and do something that my mind wants to go and do that I enjoy doing, but I've got to stay in the seat and study so I can bring a meal for God's people. Second thing you can do, second responsibility in relation to this message. You know what the marks, the characteristics of a faithful minister are. Pray for the minister. Second, you have a responsibility to apply the truth that is being taught through Adam Tyson here in this church. And I know he's not the only preacher here. So when men stand in this pulpit, you have a responsibility to take that and to apply it. And so I'm giving you two applications this morning. Because I've come by way, I wanted to encourage you today. As you look at, at, at Adam's life, as you look at the pastors of this church and the ministers in this church, that you can say, yes, these are faithful men. We can, have, we can be confident in their leadership. Uh, but yes, in response to that, we need to pray. And yes, in response to that, we need to apply what's being taught. There's nothing more discouraging to a pastor than a church that buries its head in the sands of time, in the sands of this world. There's nothing more discouraging to a pastor than when he preaches his heart out and he puts the cause of Christ down and he marks, uh, marks the mark in the sand and says, you need to be on this side. Stand over here with me. And people go on on this side in the ways of the world. Adam, may God strengthen you. May he give you the desires of your heart as you serve his people here at Placerita Bible Church and beyond. May God strengthen this congregation as you follow the faithful example of your leaders and you learn to walk in the abundant grace that God has given to you. And may the next five years, Lord willing, be even more blessed, even be more impactful than the first five years. As you look back, may you at the end of the next five years be able to say God has done exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever have asked or imagined. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning, for your goodness, your grace, your kindness. We ask for your blessing upon this message to our hearts, and we ask that you would build this church, that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it, that each soul and each person here today would leave this place encouraged by knowing that they are a part of a church with faithful ministers. To God, to your name, to your praise, to your honor, be all the glory. Amen.